congratulations, Sydney, and congratulations to all of our little ones. We've had a good morning and a good celebration. Let's open our Bibles, thank you, to the book of Exodus. We're going to be reading a few verses from chapter 18. For those of you that uh, maybe haven't been here much this summer, uh, vacation times and what have you, um, we have, we're usually in a series, uh, most of the sermons I preach are, are part of a series, but we have been this summer just kind of taking what we're calling puzzle pieces, kind of filling in the perimeter of the things God has been speaking to us. Our theme this year has been about us learning to stand, and that means two things. It means to learn to stand in the Lord's presence so that when his glory comes, we can minister in his presence. But it also means to stand against the enemy. So we've been learning various and sundry things during the last few weeks this summer in particular. And um, we want to talk today about one other puzzle piece. And it is this idea of small groups. And John Maxwell had a sermon teaching oh, probably 40 years ago, called Small Groups Make a Big Difference. And while this isn't his message, it was remind, I, every time I think of small groups, I, rem, I remember his explanation of why small groups are important. And that's what we want to talk about today. So Father, in the name of Jesus, we come to you. We're so thankful for the celebrations we've had today, but now it's time for the most important celebration and that is your purpose for our lives. I pray for everyone that's here today, Lord. We're talking about groups, large groups, small groups. But Lord, we realize there may be one here today. Maybe they feel alone. Maybe their need is unique to them. Maybe they didn't have any idea that we would be talking about groups today because they feel like they are in a setting all by themselves. And I pray that as we talk about one dynamic, that your spirit would permeate their life with another. Talk to them about their importance to you, that you, if they were the only ones that had the sin problem that we all have, if they were the only ones, you would have died for them. I pray, Father, that you would help us to understand how great the love of God is for every single one of us and that no one is here by accident. Let your anointing be upon us as I speak and upon others as we listen and we pray that in the few minutes when we open the altars, may there be a time of encounter and lives changed and fulfilled for the glory of God. We ask these things in Christ's name, amen. Amen. Now, we've been on a journey. We're been, we've been on a journey of um, discovering our purpose and the purpose of a church. I, I described it uh, nearly 25 years ago as going from Sears to Dillard's. And when we talked about going from Sears to Dillard's, we, where that came from is when I moved here, my family was little. Three out of four of my kids were preschoolers. And for our entertainment each week, we walked from Sears to Dillard's. And we talked about how difficult it was to get everybody from Sears to Dillard's. Uh, we passed stores that my oldest had interest in, but my youngest didn't care about. 
We passed stores that they all wanted to go into. We passed stores that some would cry to go into and cry when we pulled them out. Had to deal with shoplifting a couple of times while you're watching the older kids. The one in the crib was loading up. I mean, not the crib, the uh, stroller was loading up. So it was an interesting thing. But there's something about going from Sears to Dillard's. We made the commitment that we were not going to leave anybody behind. We're all going to get there together no matter how slowly we have to move or how rapidly at times we move. Some had to pick up the pace. Others had to slow down the pace. But that became such a beautiful weekly experience for us, the journey from Sears to Dillard's. And that's what the Christian life is. It is a journey. I read Genesis 28, 13 and uh, this is what Isaac, we're not gonna, don't turn to it, but you might want to mark it down. Genesis 28, 13, or, or verse 3 rather, Genesis 28, 3. Isaac says to Jacob, may God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and increase your numbers. Now you say, well, that's a good description of church growth. May he bless you, make you fruitful, increase your numbers. But this is what Isaac said, until you become a community of peoples. Did you get that? Church is not just about numbers. Church is not just about blessing. Church is not just about fruitfulness. God does these wonderful things in our midst, but he does it because he has us on a journey and we are becoming a community of people. I was in uh, Colorado this week and at the um, New Life Church um, at the conference. I love the worker shirts. On the back of their shirt, it had worker and it had it scratched out. Then it had um, uh, a, a team member and it had it scratched out. And then it had helper, had it scratched out. And then at the bottom, it had family. And that's, that's what we're after. We're after this journey of becoming a community of people. Have you ever thought about when Jesus saved you and when he saved me, he didn't just save us to keep us from hell. Now that's plenty motivation for me. That's plenty reason enough. But if that's all the grace of God was after, he'd save us and him a lot of trouble by saving us and killing us. Just let us drop dead right there at the altar. But there's something that he wants us to latch onto, a journey he wants us to enjoy. Paul would put it this way in Philippians 3 and about verse 12. He says uh, in the King James, he says, I press on so that I may apprehend that for which I have been apprehended. Uh, I think it's the New International Version reads it, uh, uh, translates it this way. He said, I keep serving in order to take hold of that for which Jesus Christ took hold of me. That's our journey. He says, my purpose in life is to take hold of the thing that motivated Jesus to take hold of me. He says, every one of us needs to know why our life was seized. And that's the Greek word there, the seized. He said, I have been seized. And he said, I was seized for a purpose. Have you ever been pulled over by the police and you had no idea why you were pulled over? Now, if you were doing 85 and a 35, you've got a pretty good idea. 
of why you're being pulled over. But I, I know, I, and, and you know, when that happens, you just say, oh man, I'm caught. I'm messed up. I shouldn't, yeah. and you automatically, you know, you're in deep repentance. But I want to tell you, when you're pulled over and you don't know why you're pulled over, uh, until it's explained to you, you're in confusion. You're, you're afraid, you know, do I look like a serial killer or that, you know, what's going on. But once the policeman explains what you did or why you were pulled over, then things begin to, to, to settle down. And can I just tell you this loved ones? I think the reason a lot of Christians have frustration is because they're saved. They know they're saved they know that Jesus died for them, and now they've got their whole life in front of them, and they've never stopped long enough to find out, Lord, why did you save me? You say, well, it's to not go to hell. Well, I, I understand that, and that's, like I said, that's foundational. But you are saved for a purpose. You are saved for a reason. You are saved to serve. And you and I are on a journey of becoming conformed to the image of Christ to know him and uh, to grow up in him and then to invest in the lives of others. It's a beautiful journey. And part of that journey, I believe, is this idea of, um, of being part of a small group. Now, um, most of us in the Southeast from a Protestant background, we, we come to a church that's got small group built into its DNA. It's called Sunday School. Those of you from a, a Southern Baptist background, especially, um, or an Assembly of God background, you know that our fellowship groups begin with Sunday school. That's the starting point. But you have churches like ours, and guys, this is, this is one of our battles. We've been fighting it ever since I've been here and, and long before that. We, we are a growing church, and we don't have room for Sunday school. So we, we, we have wrestled with this. We've struggled with this. We've tried different kinds of schedules. And we came to the conclusion when we built this auditorium, we needed an auditorium, uh, and, and, but we also needed more classrooms. We couldn't do both. And so we opted for the auditorium and we decided to give all of our classrooms with the exception of a couple on Sundays, both services, the classrooms are given to the education of our children. We felt that that was the priority. We felt that was the most important thing. Um, we, we have tried to help. We gave you uh, the, the media access Right now, media, where you can plug in and, and, and uh, get some good Christian ed that way. But it's one of the disadvantages of coming to this church. We don't have a facility um, to, to house adult Sunday school. You say, well, pastor, you ought to fix it. Well, you just write a check and we'll fix it. <laughs> we'll, we'll have it fixed by Christmas if you'll, if you'll just write a check. But we've had to struggle with that and what it has done, it has made us understand more and more the importance of small groups. You say, well, I just want to be like the early church. They had Sunday school. No, they didn't, but they did have small groups. The scripture says that they met in the temple, they met in public places, and then they met from house to house. So it, small groups was a, was a very, very important thing. And as churches grow, as lives grow, as families grow, let me give you one more illustration before we launch into this, uh, this text today. 
Uh, have you ever gone to the garden center and bought those old whiskey barrels that have been cut in half? And you use them for planters. They make some of the best planters. But those old whiskey barrels cut in half are a lot like churches. And I'm not talking about the alcohol. (laughs) They're a lot like homes. Can I go a step further and tell you they're a lot like lives? That whiskey barrel is made up, depending on the size of the barrel, of about two dozen planks that fit together so tightly that when the whiskey is put in it and and is absorbed by the wood, that wood swells and not a drop can get out of there. And if you have a perfectly whole barrel, you can fill that barrel up to the very top. But what happens if you have one bad plank? It doesn't matter how sound the other 23 planks are. With that one bad plank, that determines how much uh, water the barrel can hold. Am I making sense to you? Uh, A lot of times I think that we forget uh, in this issue of letting the Lord work his sanctifying process in our lives and in our churches, we'll forget this and we'll forget that Or we'll say this isn't important because these other planks are big and strong. A lot of times we'll come to a church, but we never, when when we ask somebody what they loved best about Christian life when they were joining the church, they said, I love the church because it's so big I can come late, leave early, and nobody knows. And we had to explain to them that, well, then we said, what do you love about the church? And they named three or four things we love. And And we use the barrel as an example. And we said, well, those things you love, they may be this high. And, but you can never be filled up to that level. You can never be filled up to the level of the preaching or the worship or anything else because of this area of neglect down here. Am I making sense? I found as a Christian, as a pastor, as a daddy, as a husband, I may have some towering strengths But my life isn't going to flow to my strengths if I have short planks in my life or rotted planks. So that's the idea of becoming whole. And theologians talk about means of grace. Down for the last 2,000 years of church history, theologians have basically centered around four things. And they say these four things are God's gift that make us grow. The degree to which we latch on to these things. The degree to which we latch on to these things is the degree to which we will grow. Number one is the word of God. So the word of God determines how high we will grow. You say, well, I'm okay there. Prayer determines how high we will grow. It's a means of grace. In other words, means of grace means it's a way that I get to God and grow up in God. So there's the word of God. um, There's prayer. There's the fellowship, number three, of the Holy Spirit. They say that none of it works without the indwelling Holy Spirit. So the more I make the Holy Spirit at home in my life, the more I can grow. But you know what number four is? The fourth thing that they say, will, if it's neglected, will keep a child of God from growing in their potential. And you know what? Using the barrel as an example, what they're saying is it doesn't really matter how much you pray. It doesn't matter how much you read the scripture. It doesn't matter how much you welcome the Holy Spirit. If you leave off this fourth plank, you're never going to grow 
grow into what you were intended to be. And theologians say the fourth means of grace is the community of believers. You see, you may say, well, I don't need to be around people to pray. No, but I'll tell you what God has done. He has designed us so that everything that works in our lives works better in community. It works better in community. What's the old saying? If you want to travel fast, go alone. But if you want to travel far, travel with others. And I think one of the things that God is restoring to his church is the idea of being community, of being a family, of, of being one another. Now, I know that that's, it's harder to be part of a family than it is to be solo. It's also more lonely. But it's, it's tougher to be part of a family because it's sort of like, like uh, porcupines on a cold winter night. They snuggle in close because they need the warmth, but then when it gets hot, the quills come out and they kind of stick each other. And I guess the best way to say it, church life is like this. We, we need each other, but we also needle each other. But God has designed it. Look at all the one another passages. God has designed New Testament Christianity. And, and guys, I, I want to, with all the love I can, well, let me finish my sentence. God has designed New Testament Christianity to operate in the fellowship of community, in the fellowship of a church. The New Testament church, because they didn't have the ease of trans transportation and that sort of thing, you, you did not find in the New Testament church people swapping churches from all over town when they got mad about something. That was their church. That was their town. That was their city. And uh, we also have historical records that when you went from one town to another, you were expected to carry recommendation from your church to the community of believers in the next town. It's a, it's a bigger deal than we think because we're such a mobile, we're such a mobile society. But uh, I, want to, I want to tell you this. We have allowed, sometimes I think it's through the devil's deception, and I'm not trying to be belligerent because pastors do this too, you know, pastors say, well, you know, if they don't treat me right, I'll just go to another church. I tell you, I think pastors need to learn the idea of community and family and loyalty a lot more than we have. But sometimes we have the attitude that when we come together, if my needs aren't met, I'll find another place to go. Or if I don't like the worship, I'll just, you know, I'll go sit out in the car and listen to Moody till we get through worship or whatever. We, we, we have this illusion that the church experience has been created for us and we usually glibly say, well, we're not worshiping you, we're worshiping God. But it's even more than that. It's even more than we're worshiping God. God does his best work by putting us in a family that is flawed, that is weak, that is frail. But I want to tell you, this is the way real families work. When your back is against the wall, those siblings that you fought with a week before, they're gathering around you. And, and the, the wagons are circling. That's what it is to be in church life. So let's look at the passage in Exodus, and then I want to make some points very quickly. Now, Jethro, now this is the father-in-law of Moses, by the way. Do not think of Bodines. This is not the Bodines. <laughs> Jethro, now, Jethro, the priest of Midian and father-in-law of Moses, 
heard of everything God had done for Moses and for his people Israel and how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Now they're fresh in the wilderness. They're beginning to learn how to function as a community. And after Moses had sent away his wife Zipporah, his father-in-law Jethro received her and her two sons. One son was named Gershom, for Moses said, I have become a foreigner in a foreign land. And the other was Eliezer. He said, my father's God was my helper. He saved me from the sword of Pharaoh. Now, in other words, when the plagues were going and it was getting tough, Moses sent his family, his wife, to be with her dad. And she took their sons. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, together with Moses' sons and wife, came to him in the wilderness where he was camped near the mountain of God. And Jethro had sent word to him, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and two sons. So Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. They greeted each other and then went into the tent. Moses told his father-in-law about everything the Lord had done to Pharaoh and the Egyptians for Israel's sake and about all the hardships they had met along the way and how the Lord had saved them. Jethro was delighted to hear about all the good things the Lord had done in Israel, uh, for Israel in rescuing them from the hand of the Egyptians. He said, praise be to the Lord who rescued from the hand of you from the hand of the Egyptians and a Pharaoh who rescued the people from the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know, and what that means is now I see myself that the Lord is greater than all other gods, for he did this to those who had treated Israel arrogantly. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and other sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat a meal with Moses' father-in-law in the presence of God. The next day, Moses took his seat to serve as judge for the people. And they stood around him from morning till evening, when his father-in-law saw all that Moses was doing for the people, he said, what is this you're doing for the people? Why do you sit alone as judge while all these people stand around you from morning till evening? See, Moses' job wasn't just to stand around and then maybe lead a parade when they move from one place to another. Moses, like the kings of Israel, his job was to sit in judgment of the people. Okay, so Moses answered him, because the people came to me to seek God's will. Whenever they have a dispute, it's brought to me and I decide between the parties and inform them of God's decrees and instructions. Moses' father-in-law replied, what you're doing is not good. You and these people who come to you will only wear yourselves out. The work is too heavy for you. You cannot handle it alone. Listen now to me and I will give you some good advice and may God be with you. You must be the people's representative before God and bring their disputes to him. Teach them his decrees and instructions and show them the way they are to live and how they are to behave. And can I say this? Scholars believe that Jethro made a fine distinction. Moses said, well, people come with their problems and I tell them God's decrees. And Jethro was saying, that's not the way to teach God's decrees. You don't teach God's decrees in a knee-jerk fashion to this problem and that problem and that problem. He says, your job, Moses, is to teach systematically. Your job is to codify and to organize the teachings of God so that you don't have these conflicts to begin with. Uh, but select capable men, verse 21, 
from all the people, men who fear God, trustworthy men who hate dishonest gain, and appoint them as officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. Have them serve, now the Chitty Revised Standard says, make them small group leaders. Have them serve as judges for the people at all times, but have them bring every difficult case to you. The simple cases, they can decide themselves. That will make your load lighter because they will share it with you. If you do this and God so commands, in other words, if you do this and and I'm hearing from the Lord and this is the will of God, you will be able to stand the strain. Boy, isn't that a beautiful passage for those of us that feel the strain sometime, maybe on your way home from work Friday, you just say, I don't know if I can stand the strain. Well, Jethro was telling Moses, if you can get things in order, you'll be able to stand the strain. And here's another one we thought was impossible. All these people will go home satisfied. Moses listened to his father-in-law and did everything he said. He chose capable men from all Israel and made them leaders of the people, officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. They served as judges for the people at all times. The difficult cases they brought to Moses, but the simple ones they decided themselves. Now, in these 26 verses, we see a profound problem. The people had been set free. Um, And a lot of times we tend to think once we get free, we have no problems. But um, uh, once we get free, we've got to learn how to live a new life. Got to learn how to live a new life. And so thankfully, we see not only the problem, but we see the solution. Now we're going to find out, and I mean, it's there, you can already see it. But we're going to find out that the idea of being part of a small group, as well as a great celebration, is actually going to help you. It's going to help me. And it's going to facilitate the purposes of God for our church. I thank God for a good crowd. I thank God we're considered a large church. But there are some things that cannot happen in a large gathering that can only happen in small gatherings. Now, there are some things that cannot happen in small gatherings. They can only happen in large gatherings. But let's look at these three principles that John Maxwell talked about years ago. Here's number one. Small groups can actually help the people. We find the people were worn out by waiting. We found, secondly, that Moses was being worn out by the demands. And with the changes suggested by Jethro, the people went home satisfied. Now, the latest statistics I can find say that the average church in America is a little under 100 people. And you say, well, if they had better singing, they'd be more people. If they had better preaching, they'd have more people. No, actually, we teach our pastors how to care for about 100 people. That's what we're taught in in, uh, college and in seminary. We are given skills that only work to about 100 adults. I mean, at least that's the way it was with me. And sometimes when we teach people to handle more, we don't teach them how to relate. Because whether you're a pastor of 200 or 2,000, shepherds need to smell like sheep. 
Shepherds need to be among their people. Shepherds need to be with their people. And it's a, it's a difficult thing to, to find how to grow a church past about 100 because relationally, the relational dynamics are this. A church will not grow beyond about 125 to 130 people because they have plateaued. And that's all that a pastor can take care of. If, if you expect the pastor to be at the hospital, if you expect the pastor to be the counselor, if you expect the pastor to be the chaplain, that's about all that he can take care of. My home church was a fine church. It was a beautiful church. I don't know of any place I'd rather grow up than Eastside Assembly of God in Pensacola, Florida. But all of my life, we never exceeded. A, I mean, you, it was like clockwork. Every Sunday, we had between 128 and 132 people. It was something you could depend on. And the reason was we had a pastor that was a chaplain. He was, a, he was my grandfather. I mean, he wasn't physically my grandfather, but he was a grandfather to me. He was a father to my parents. And he was the most diligent, faithful pastor I've ever known. He's the most Christ-like man I've ever known in all my life. But because of the structure of the church, he was never going to be able to lead more than 100 to 120 or 30 people. He couldn't do it. People wouldn't have their needs met or he would be frustrated. Now, what happens is that when God grows us, our life, our church, our family, beyond a certain number, we have to make adjustments to the way we do things. You know, I, we were watching the Duggars a few months ago. You know who the Duggars are. What, what, what is it, 19 kids and now grandkids? And, and somebody in the room said, it's just amazing how those parents take care of all those kids. And somebody in our house says, those parents don't take care of those kids. Those parents delegate to the older kids and the older kids take care of those kids. That wasn't a criticism. They just understood two parents can't ride herd over 19 kids. You've got to get the older kids to help. And, and um, you, know, you know the principle that I'm trying to say, the same thing is true in life and churches. So what happened is here is Moses in the wilderness and he's hearing the demands of depending on how scholars calculate it, between two and a half and six million people and everything is riding on his shoulders. So Jethro says, here's number one, if you can understand the principle of small groups, it will help the people go home satisfied. So loved ones, I want to tell you, if you want the maximum benefit out of the Christian life experience, you need to be here on Sunday morning you need to be a part of the great celebration, but you need to find a group, a small group that can do for you what a big group can't do for you. Pastor Darren, um, in, I don't know, three or four weeks is going to be introducing the new semester of small groups and he's going to be preaching that Sunday while I'm, uh, no, I'll be back by then. But anyway, he'll be preaching about small groups that Sunday. And I want you to know that some of you need to stretch. You say, well, pastor, that's why I like coming to this church. I can be anonymous and nobody gets too close. And, and pastor Justin is so gracious when he tells us to take somebody's hand and pray, he does it in such a way. It gives me a chance to run to the cafe or the bathroom. And I, I just don't have to get touched. Well, I want to tell you, um, you and I need to entertain the possibility that it's time for us to stretch. 
and it's time for us to become part of a small group. Now, it not only can help the people, but it can also help the pastors. Verse 20 indicated that Moses' responsibility was teaching, not primarily as a caregiver. Now, don't get me wrong, any pastor that loves his flock is going to be involved in caregiving. But a pastor's got to understand his primary responsibility is to go before the Lord and to teach the congregation what God is laying in his heart. That goes all the way back to Moses where Moses would go and meet with the Lord. Then he would come back and explain to the people what God was saying. Verse 23 indicated this strategy would enable Moses to stand the strain. Now, this isn't just Old Testament. This is a New Testament principle. In Acts 6, 1 to 7, in the days when the number of disciples were increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. Now, very simply, there was almost as many people in town for the Feast of Pentecost as there were lived in Jerusalem. And when the church was born on the day of Pentecost, a lot of people that were there did not go back home. So you had the, the Hebraic Jews and part of their culture, it was unthinkable to the Hebrew mind that a widow would not be taken care of. It was automatic. But to the Hebraic I mean, the Hellenistic Jews, they were Jews in name only, some of them, and they had lived all throughout the Roman Empire, and they did not, they, had, they were not part of a culture that took care of the elderly. They did not have the appreciation of life that the Hebraic culture did, whether it was babies or whether it was the elderly. So the Hebrew widows were automatically taken care of by the church, but the Hellenistic Jews didn't have a structure and they had nobody to take care of them. So the church has a problem. Can I tell you what happens when you grow? You have problems. So the 12 gathered all the disciples together and said it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. They, they, they weren't saying, hey, we're too good to work. But they were saying our responsibility is the word and prayer because we've got to stand before these people and teach and instruct them, give them systematic guidance. And if we, we can't do this and this, so we've got to decide which we want to do. We feel this is what God wants us to do. But those people need to be taken care of. So they said, brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom, and we will turn this responsibility over to them. It will, uh, and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen and then, and Philip, you know, those two, the others we're not as familiar with, so I won't read their names. But Stephen and Philip, prominent characters in the book of Acts, came out of this lightening the load on the pastors. They were taking up a ministry uh, that, that they could do. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed <coughs> and laid their hands on them. And what happened with this delegation of powers? Here it is in verse 7. The word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. And a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. This going to a small group, it helped the people like it did in Moses' day. But it also freed the spiritual leaders of the church to not lose their time with God. 
Because that's, and you know what I found? I have found that almost without exception, every Christian I've ever met would rather their spiritual leader spend time with God than spend time doing all the other work in the church. And I didn't get many amen, so you're going to have to think about that. When, when pastors are released to the Lord, the congregation can rise to new levels of ministry. Think about Stephen's story, his sermon, his martyrdom, and the influence of his life. That may have never happened if there had not been this need in the church and the pastor says, we need, we need you to stand up. Stephen was not a preacher. Now, he could preach, but he was not a pastor but he was a layman that rose to the occasion. And the same thing happened with Philip. He got a revival started uh, among the Samaritans. And he had a home of such influence that four of his unmarried daughters were prophetesses. Okay, that came out of the small group concept. Um, now, it also helps the purpose. Um, the system worked for Israel in the wilderness and um, was put in place for the people of God when they began to serve God under a new king, it enabled the Israelites to live in peace. In the New Testament, it enabled the church to exalt and equip and evangelize. And in Acts 6, 7, we see the church growing and the kingdom expanding. When the church said, we got it, we, we, we've plateaued, hear me, loved ones, when a church plateaus and they say we're going to create small groups, they find out that we don't grow by addition, we grow by division. We grow by division. We create new venues. We create new venues. Okay, what are the Christian life lessons? Let me give them to you quickly. There's only a couple of them, or three, three of them. Um, here's number one. This is just something we need to think about. Churches stop growing for three primary reasons. One, there are spiritual barriers. There are good reasons that churches stop growing. I don't believe every church ought to be a large church uh, any more than I believe any, any tool ought to be a large tool. Um, you know, when you go to a farm, you have these great huge combines, but those combines can't get into certain places of a field. Uh, you need smaller tools, and we need smaller churches. We need larger churches. Um, but churches stop growing for three primary reasons. Number one, spiritual reasons. Uh, some of them positive, some of them negative. For instance, what's a positive spiritual reason a church might stop growing? God in his wisdom and his providence may need this church to hover around 100 or 150 people because of the mission or the location they've got. I'm afraid... I mean, I'm not condemning. I'm just, I've seen it enough to say I'm concerned that some churches begin to grow and instead of um, reevaluating their mission, they automatically pack up and relocate and they neglect their neighborhoods. I, I knew a man in another state that um, he said, I don't want more than 100, 150 people. He said, I just don't want, I can't handle them. He wanted to be very hands-on with everybody. And uh, I have known some pastors that refuse to let folks in their church for that same reason. But you know what he did? Um, uh, people were kind of critical of him because he, was, he had about 150 people and he had been there for over 20 years. But you know what he did? Every time they got over 150, as they approached 200, they planted another church. 
And he never pastored more than 150, 200 people. But there were nine churches in his city, all of whom had hundreds of people. All of them had hundreds of people that were started by this one man's vision. He said, I can't pastor more than 150 people. He said, I don't have the intellect to think on a different level. Or he said, I don't want to think on a different level. I shouldn't say he didn't have the intellect. But he said, I don't have the burden to think on a different level. So there are spiritual barriers. Some churches are small because God wants them to be small. But those are positive things. Some churches are small because of negative spiritual um, barriers like disobedience, unwillingness to walk in faith and believe God. But sometimes there are spiritual barriers. Sometimes there are, there are natural barriers. We're at a plateau right now. We've been here for several years. We'll go up and we'll go down. We're in this range and we'll fluctuate by, by two or 300. And the reason is we just, we don't have any other place to meet. We don't have enough room. We, we tried numerous services and what we found out is that church experts tell us that multiple services, the more services you have, the, the more of a decrease there is in the effectiveness of the services. For instance, if you have one service, you can get 100%. If you have two services, you get 100%, then 80%. But if you have three services, you'll have 100%, 80%, 60%. So, you know, I'm, I'm willing to preach six times a day. I already preach that long probably, but, uh, <laughs> but we found out the hard way. You, you can't just schedule more services, more services. It doesn't work. We have a natural barrier and we, we, we are in a process right now where we felt uh, in, in one of our elders meetings, one of the guys said something that I thought was brilliant. He said, I think what God may be telling us is that we need to focus on being the healthiest church we can be instead of the largest church we can be until we can figure out a way to grow. And you say, well, pastor, we, we, just, we need more room. Well, again, your checkbook is the answer. So, uh, you know, you're preaching to the choir. There's, there's not a space problem we've got that you can't solve. You know, I'm just see, see me on the way out. Now, uh, so there are natural, natural barriers. But I want to tell you that something that should never happen. Some churches may stop growing for spiritual reasons. And if they're good spiritual reasons, that's okay. Some churches may just reach their natural barrier. It's just we don't have any other way to grow. But sometimes we find that churches stop growing, and I think this may be the most common, they stop growing because their needs are no longer being met. I find that generally speaking, a church will grow until needs are no longer met. What happened in the story in Acts we just read about? They were growing, they were growing, they were growing, and then all of a sudden, a whole segment of the church, their needs are not being met and everything stops. So what did they do? They, they reviewed, they prayed, they restructured, they started something new, they went into small groups, and what happens? Then the church begins to grow again. Okay. Uh, let me give you the second principle, okay? Churches stop growing for, for those three reasons. Pastors are equippers. Um, I'm not trying to, I'm, this isn't a be good to the pastor. I, you treat me like royalty here. I, I, I do not deserve to be treated with the honor and respect with which you treat me and all the pastors. We love you. We've got no complaints. But we want you to understand that pastors are equippers 
the work God gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers to prepare the body for works of ministry. In fact, the leadership of a church is described in three ways in the New Testament. In, the, in Acts chapter 20, we see the three ways lumped together used in one passage of scripture. Uh, the leaders of the church are to be elders. That's the presbyteroi is the word that's used. Men who lead by example and wisdom. Uh, uh, the presbyter should be a person of mature experience. Um, you go to the doctor and he says, well, you need glasses. And you say, what's wrong with my eyes? He'll say presbyopia because, you know, opia means eyes. And whenever you hear that word presby, you know, presbyter, it just means old. It just means old. So when the presbyters meet for the district, it's a meeting of old guys. When we have our elders meeting, it's a meeting of old guys. But the emphasis is not on chronology. The emphasis is on experience. Okay, the other word is episkopoi. You see the word scopos, uh, episkopos. Uh, you see the word scope or scopos in it. It means overseer, just like you look down the barrel of a gun into a scope to get a better view of what you're looking at. Elders, pastors in the church are not only to be mature men of wisdom, but they are also to be overseers who see what others do not see. And they, the third word is poemen. That's the word for shepherd. They're to be shepherds and shepherds feed, lead, and protect. Now, so understand churches that grow will allow the pastors to be overseers, to lead with mature wisdom, spend their time with God, but then protect the flock to lead them where they ought to go, to feed them the word of God and to protect them from dangers. And here's the last thing I want you to see. Churches need to find their rhythm of ministry. I think that's what God has been doing in us for years. He's teaching us to develop our rhythm. There were, there were years when we thought about do we go off-site? And, and, and these things, all these options are still on the table. But we've, we've tried to work our way through every possibility that was out there for us. And we find that we're at a, the, the place we are right now, believing that God is preparing us for the harvest. Now, loved ones, hear me. God did not just save you to keep you out of hell. He saved you to put you on a journey to fulfill your destiny within the church. And I want you to know, I don't think your salvation depends on it, but especially with our unique set of circumstances, we need every one of you to find a home in a small group. It, we need every one of you. Your children are well taken care of. Uh, your, your teens are well taken care of because we've made them the priority. They got all the other space. They got all the other space with the exception of just a couple of rooms. But we need you to decide, well, I'm not going to be one of those that just comes and enjoys services. I, I hope you do come and enjoy the service. But there is a place of ministry for you to give and ministry for you to receive and it's in small groups. You say, okay, pastor, what's your altar call today to repent for not being in a small group? No, in fact, my altar call has nothing to do with small groups, but I do want to show you the benefit of community. I'm going to ask the ministry teams to move into position now. 
And this is what we want you to do. If you have needs, we want you to know that there are people up front that are ready to pray for you, ready to pray with you. And in small groups, that's what every small group has a, as a non-negotiable component. You become fellowship in a much smaller group and you're able to talk, you're able to share, you're able to have your needs met. Um, every once in a while somebody will say, well, when, when we have to go to the prayer teams, sometimes I have to wait for so long. I understand. And, and that's one of the downsides of a larger service. But when you get in a small group, the, the emphasis is on care. So what we want to do today, I want you to consider small groups. Pastor Darren will be talking to you about it in a few weeks and giving you opportunity. Some of you need to become small group leaders but right now, we want to exercise the pastoral care that a church does. We want to pray for those of you who need healing. We want to pray for those of you that are here today carrying a heavy load. If you are here and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are the primary reason besides him, you're the primary reason we've gathered today. We're not asking you to join the church but in fact, you couldn't join the church today. It's a process with classes, but you can join the family today. You can join the family. When I gave my heart to Jesus, my pastor made it so clear. I didn't understand. I mean, I understood, but I didn't understand theological concepts and terms. He said, the only thing you need to understand is two things. You're a big sinner I understood that well. I was down at the altar squalling, little boy, and he's a big savior. He can save whoever comes to him. And once you get that, the rest can be explained. If you'd like to give your heart to Jesus, please come to one of the ministry teams. Get a hold of one of the pastors. We'd love to pray with you. Would you stand with me, please? Father, thank you for teaching us the value of small groups Thank you for reminding us that we're not part of a big, huge conglomeration. We're part of a family. We're part of a family. And Lord, sometimes we just need the embrace of family. I think that's what today is about. So be exalted as we conclude this service, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you if you need to go. If you want prayer, please come now and let one of these ministry teams uh, pray with you. The altars are open. God bless you.